Well, Harry Markopoulos was a financial advisor at a large uh, investment firm in Boston. He was tasked to make good returns on this, uh, this basic major account. And so they asked him to study one of the largest, most successful hedge funds in the world. But here's what he found in studying this hedge fund. He found that this hedge fund were doing something that was impossible. There was no way that they could grow at the rate that they were growing. He felt so convicted by this that he made not one, not two, but three submissions to what we call the police of the financial markets, the Securities and Exchange Commission. The last submission was titled, The World's Largest Hedge Fund is a Fraud. Ten years he pursued the SEC to take action against this company, and they never did. It was not until 2008, when the FBI was tipped off from the inside of that company, that the firm was finally investigated. And a year later, the head of the firm went to jail, and he was convicted of stealing $65 billion dollars in a Ponzi scheme. The name of that firm and the individual, Bernie Madoff Securities, that is the company that Harry went after. Imagine that you might have invested money in Madoff's company and lost everything. If you knew the reality of what was going on in that company, what would you have done with your money? Would that reality cause you to act a different way with your investments? Would you have listened to Markopoulos? What might have kept you from listening to the reality of what was happening at Bernie Madoff's company? There is another one this morning that we're going to study, an individual that's going to make a plea to you this morning for something greater than your financial portfolio. He's going to argue that there is an eternal reality. Will you believe in that reality? And how will believing in that reality affect the way that you live and the way that you act? Let's see what is said by this individual that's going to make this argument to us this morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, please pay attention as we look at God's word this morning. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, long to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up with, by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee." So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, 
not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The grass withers and the flowers fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We're just joining us. Welcome. We've been going through uh, this epistle, 2 Corinthians. It's actually, I can't call it the second letter. It's really the fourth letter, as mentioned in First and 2 Corinthians, that Paul has written other letters to this church. And in these letters, he describes a very complicated relationship with a church that Paul founded in the southern part of Greece in this port town that was growing and becoming a greater and greater power in the Roman Empire. And the reason that there seems to be a complicated relationship between Paul, the founder of this church in Corinth, and the people in this church in the town in Corinth, is that there seems to be different experiences that they are having. Paul has suffered imprisonment. He has, he has suffered beatings. He has suffered near-death experiences. He's been ridiculed and mocked might be very different than the experience of the people in this church. They come from an economically thriving town. Many have come out of slavery and now are seeking a more comfortable life and are advancing in this, again, growing city of Corinth. And they hear what Paul is experiencing and maybe even seeing what he goes through, and they're wondering, do we want to live according to the message that he's preaching? It becomes more complicated that there are these super apostles, these ones that are preaching a false gospel that are coming into Corinth and telling them the things that Paul is experiencing is not the true Christian life. You should have experienced comfort, esteem, victory now, not what Paul is experiencing. How does Paul respond to such messages? What we see, as we've seen as we've gone through this letter, is that he does not shy away from his suffering. Instead, he runs to it. And here in this passage, we see that Paul doubles down. He takes suffering and goes all the way to its end point of death. And he's asking the question, what do we do with that? The reality of death. I think this is the argument that Paul is going to make in this passage. If you're going to hear something, this is the argument that is going to be made to you today. Be courageous. Though life is fragile, there is an eternal home. Live and act in that reality. Be courageous. Though life is fragile, there is an eternal home. Live and act in that reality. 
truth is, for most of us, suffering and death can seem very distant. But there are moments in history that we realize that it's still here. Maybe the pandemic over the past two years and the death we've seen around the world, racial tensions in our country, and then most recently a war in Europe might have rattled us to our fragility and that death is only around the corner. And that is what Corinth is wrestling with. Are we going to actually face the reality that there is suffering and death, or are we just going to hide ourselves in this comfortable life? What reality are they going to face? Well, let's see, shall we? Verse 1 is very loaded, and it really gives us the major points of this whole passage. So let me read it again, and then we'll unpack it. Verse 1 says this, For we know... That if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is the reality that Paul is trying to give us. He starts with making this metaphor of a tent. Now, this would have been very familiar to some of the Jewish audience. The tent would have had this idea of what the Israelites saw God descend upon the tabernacle, and it traveled from place to place while they were in the wilderness. But it was temporary, as when they came into the land and built the temple, the temple was more permanent. And only one time in all of the Septuagint, which is the basically the Bible in Greek, the Old Testament in Greek, is the word here in the Greek, body, used. And when it's used in that one time, it's referring specifically to the body. Not to a physical place, but the body. And that is what Paul is trying to refer to here in this metaphor. The tent is our body. That is temporary and will be destroyed. Now, if you're paying close attention, you see that there's a conditional argument here. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, Paul is saying there is still the possibility that while these people are still alive, Christ will return. And if he returns, then we will not be destroyed if we are still in the body. So that is what he's saying, if. But still, the ultimate reality is that we are all going to die if Christ does not come back beforehand. Here's the thing. Throughout this passage in chapter 5, Paul uses words like, we know courageous, be courageous. These are words of confidence. He is confident in this reality. Confident that our bodies, the tent, will be destroyed and confident that God is preparing an eternal home for us. 
Very ironic, this week I was listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones, a 19th century preacher in London. And the irony was that uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about what the congregation was being preoccupied with that week. It was with the Cold War. He was preaching in the early 1960s. There were a lot of fallout shelter drills because of the tension between the USSR and the Western world. There was worry that nuclear war could break out at any time. And there was much debate at that time in the early 60s of what to do. It was just the topic of the day about the Cold War and the tensions between the West and the Soviet Union. Probably questions that are similar to us today. Questions of how to prevent a full-out world war from bombs dropping. Questions that we have about how to save ourselves from this disease that is ravaging the world. Questions about vaccines and what we do about that. Many questions that have preoccupied us over the past couple years. But Martin Lloyd-Jones made a point to his congregation, and I guess I'll make the point through him this morning. With all the questions that are being asked and debated, is anyone asking the ultimate question, what do you do when it happens? What happens when we actually die? Is anyone giving us answers to that question? The politicians, the papers, the pundits. Many argue Christianity just simply isn't relevant. But I would argue that Christianity actually acts, answers the questions that are the most pertinent to us. And one that we know is going to happen to all of us. We are going to die. I was thinking on it. Thinking about sitting or being around that congregation 60 years ago in London in the height of the Cold War. I don't think any of that congregation died because of nuclear war. But how much time did they debate and were anxious about it in their lives? But I am sure that most everyone in that congregation, I know Martin Lloyd-Jones, are now dead. Did they actually spend the time answering the question, what happens to their body when they die? Are you cognizant to that reality? That your body will one day be destroyed? Do you try to answer questions that pertain to that? Are you distracted and preoccupied with politics and debating and wars and rumors of wars when you don't even know that your end will come because of those things? Hear me. I know some of you could go, 
I heard my pastor say he doesn't care about politics or wars or anything that's going on in Ukraine. No, that's not what I'm saying, that we shouldn't care about those things. But I'm saying there is a greater question. And those other things distract us from trying to understand the reality that is going to come to us all. That might be an easy reality for you all to admit that you're going to die, right? That's the easier one to argue this morning, right? The harder one to argue or to prove, you might say, is what happens when we die. Here again is what Paul is confident in. And again, the metaphor is from a tent to a permanent building. And again, in the minds of the readers at that time, they were probably again thinking about the tabernacle that moved and the temple that was permanent in Jerusalem. Now we know the temple was destroyed twice. The temple is still not rebuilt, so it doesn't sound very permanent. But if we read in Romans chapter 8 and read when Jesus talks to those in Jerusalem, he refers to himself as the temple. And what does he say? The temple will be destroyed, but in three days it will be rebuilt. What was Jesus talking about? He was talking about his body, that he would be resurrected. In here, Paul is saying this idea that the temple, this permanent building, which would refer to what Christ is, we are going to receive. The argument is, after death, for those that belong to Christ, they will be given a permanent body, a resurrected body. They will put this on. On in the passage, Paul talks about nakedness and being clothed. When he's doing, when he's talking about these things, is he responding to the Greek thinking at that time. For the Greeks, many of them said, heaven is a disembodied state. That we do not have a body when we're in heaven. It's just the soul. Paul's saying that is not the true picture and reality of heaven. Instead, heaven is a new heavens and a new earth. That we will be embodied in heaven. We will have this resurrected body. This perfect body that will be permanent. There might be, there is a state between us dying and being with the Lord that we will be naked and disembodied, but the time will come in judgment that we will then receive an embodied state in the new heavens and the new earth. And he is saying that this world is not going to simply all go away. It's going to be restored. It's going to be swallowed up by life. Now, I hope, well, I don't hope, I hope people believe this and say, yeah, this is true, but I have a predilection that some of you here say that's a tough thing to swallow and to believe. 
What kind of reality is this? Sounds like fantasy, a fairy tale. How can Paul talk with such confidence and live in such confidence of this reality? Maybe you're a doubter today that there is no new heavens and new earth. That when I die, this is it. It is gone. There is no more. I just want to be able to get you to think about this a little bit this morning. And maybe if you want to talk more about it afterwards, I would love to. And I know Luke would, other elders would, other people would. But maybe that is where you're at. Maybe for some of us, you say, oh, I believe in all the things that Luke said. I believe all the right things, but we don't live in the reality that that is going to happen. So let me help you reaffirm what Paul is saying and what is true. See, Paul can speak with such confidence and the apostles can speak with such confidence because they have seen Jesus enter into a broken world. They have seen with their eyes this God of heaven come down and restore what is broken. They have seen the blind have sight. They have seen the lame walk. They have seen people dead brought back to life. Jesus is creating a new kingdom. The way the world should be. A new heavens and new earth. And they ultimately saw the way that was happening is by Jesus dying on the cross and then raising from the dead. Jesus was giving these people glimpses of the kingdom. Of what was to come. And then God gave these followers the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the kingdom. And you see people that receive the Spirit, it breaks the chains of sin. It causes reconciliation. It causes them to love enemies. It causes kingdoms to fall in unity to take place. Through the Spirit, we see glimpses of the kingdom working in people's lives. You just saw this morning. As Luke, facing the devastation of this world, he had a guarantee of hope. Where does that come from? Could there actually be a living being, God himself, in us to show the guarantee of what is to come? That one day there will be no death like this. There will be no tears. There will be no devastation. Luke showed us the guarantee in him by the work of the Spirit. I told you guys earlier I'd been working through C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Weight of Glory. It's actually a book that has many of his sermons and writings in it. It's a collection, I think, about five of them. And the first one is a sermon that he gave called The Weight of Glory. I encourage you to read it. Actually, you can just find a PDF online of The Weight of Glory. 
It's there for you to just read. It's not very long. But this very guarantee and these assurances that are happening, Lewis made the argument they are glimpses of what he called a far-off country. And we all have these ideas that there is something greater. Of course, he says we hide it with words like nostalgia or romanticism. But he says words can't hide the longing in us that we want beauty or a beautiful place, that we want something greater. I'm going to read a little bit of the weight of glory here. Please pay attention. Hopefully you can piece it together a little bit and understand it. Almost all of our whole education has been directed towards silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. That idea that there is a far-off country. Our philosophies that the good of humanity can be found only on this earth. They begin by trying to persuade you that earth can be made into heaven. But this fortunate event is still a good way off into the future. But even if all of this happiness could come to earth, the generation that experiences that happiness would just lose it in death. Surely, he says, a person's hunger proves he comes from a race which repairs its body by eating. In the same way, though I do not believe my desire um, for paradise proves I shall enjoy it, I think it is a good indication that such a thing exists, and some will experience it. A man may love a woman and not win her, but it would be a very odd if the phenomenon called falling in love occurred in a sexless world. See, Lewis was making the argument, the very longing in our hearts for something. The very things that says, this is a piece of heaven, proves that it is there. It has been put within us by a creator. The things we desire, peace, love, a world without tragedy is not just a dream, it's a reality. And we've seen the reality come to earth through the person of Jesus who restored what is broken and conquered death through his resurrection. So it is not something just ethereal, not something just mythical, not something we talk about to make us feel good when someone dies. Oh, they're in heaven now. No, it is something that will come. There is a longing in us for this war to end, for the pandemic to stop, for peace to reign in our families. And we can find it with confidence that we know a house is being prepared for us, an eternal one in heaven. 
Do you believe in that reality? What would it look like for you to live in that reality now? Throughout this passage, Paul is giving us a tension. The tension is this. Our bodies are wasting away, yet we have been given the spirit and we are being swallowed up by life. The world is fallen, but we see that God has broken into this world. Paul is talking about this tension, and he uses it in words like what? Groaning? Burden? We long for something different. And here Paul is responding to two worldviews at that time. Some at that time taught the kingdom had already come fully. They are totally good. All we need is right now. Victory is here. Just suppress all suffering and all pain because we are living in victory right now. That's what the super apostles were teaching. We call that an over-realized eschatology in theological terms. I wish I could say that kind of teaching has gone away, but it's still existent. I won't name names. At the other end are some of the Stoics in the Greek philosophers that say there is nothing else. All that there is is this world with its suffering and its pain. Paul is not going to either. He is talking about the reality that is true in this place, in this world. We are groaning. We are burdened. We are not with the Lord, but we wish that one day we would be. I was with a friend this week, and he said to me, don't make any life analysis, big decisions in February in Wisconsin. Just can't do that. I will make the same argument to you that it carries over. Don't make any analysis on how your body is wearing down or the news that you hear, you have not been given the full picture. That very longing and groaning that we have, the burden that we feel in our world, is that the kingdom would break in. That the mortal would be swallowed up by life, as Paul says. At the same time, don't think that idea of positivism will carry you. That you just ignore struggles. You just suppress them. If you just look at a positive outlook, everything is going to be fine. Let's make it practical. Group one. Maybe you're in this category of group one. 
that after any strenuous activity, you have to take ibuprofen. It seems to be a daily ritual. You used to be able to have to take no ibuprofen. You could lift weights, you could go for a run, and you'd be fine. Now you're realizing your body is wearing away. And there is no reversal of this body wearing away this side of heaven. But though you are wearing out physically, Paul is arguing you are not wearing out in your union with Christ. That you can be swallowed up in life. That you have a spirit as a guarantee. Yes, it is discouraging to have back pain. Yes, it is discouraging you have hair growing in places you never thought it would grow. Yes, it is discouraging you cannot run as far as you used to. Or your daughter that's 15 years old can run faster than you. But in weakness, it shows us who is greater and also the kingdom to come. That actually we can be growing in our union with Christ and we can actually be growing as people as we know what is to come for us and what has been deposited to us by having the Spirit. Now for the other side. Those who can stay up until 2 a.m. and still function the next day like there's no problems. Here's the thing in our youth. It still can't save us from anxiety, from relational discord, worse yet, from sin. As much as society is telling you Clothe yourselves with youth. Look young. Live like it's all now. YOLO. There is still a groaning and longing, and we have seen that with the youth in our culture who live with anxiety. Many are medicated. Suicide rates are up. Even in our youth, there is a groaning and longing for something else. Your hope is not being clothed with youth. Your hope is being clothed with what is eternal. In the middle of Corinth, it's been dug up and found in archaeological founds, was the Bema. It's this blue and white marble platform in the center of Corinth. It was a raised platform. And there was a seat there that gave judgments upon the people in Corinth. In Acts 18, we realize that Paul was charged there in the Bema in front of the citizens of Corinth. We have to wonder how many times Paul was judged in his missionary journeys. 
judged from city to city, even judged by his own church in Corinth, as we see in these letters. And here he's giving us that same picture in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bema of Christ. How was he so confident in facing persecution and ridicule and bodily harm and burdens? How did he live to please one, Christ? How was he so confident in those places to speak with love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and gentleness to this church that disappointed him over and over and over again. He loved them and cared for them. The judgment, he was in the judgment seat with them all the time, but he responded in such gracious ways. He responded in that way because he realized that life is fragile. But he had an eternal home. And he lived for that home. And he lived for the one who prepared it for him. If that is the reality, that there is one that sat in the judgment seat, and whose body was destroyed so that we might have an eternal home, how should we then live? To please Him, to live for Him, even in this feeble body, knowing with confidence He has a home for us. Let us live to please that God.